So this evening, I would like to look at a few quotes from uh, various Zen texts. And so the first one is from uh, the Sixth Patriarch. Uh, you have heard a little about him, Huineng. And that's what he says. He who is puffed up by the slightest impression, I am now enlightened, is no better than when he was under delusion. Shall I repeat it? He who is puffed up by the slightest impression, I am now enlightened, is no better than when he was under delusion. And this is, in a way, this quote is to talk a little about, in a way, kind of what we, what we can expect when we meditate. Because, I mean, we meditate not just because we have nothing better to do and we could have gone golfing instead, but generally we meditate because there is this aspiration to wisdom, to compassion, to <coughs> awakening. But I think we have to kind of be a little careful because often I think we equate awakening, enlightenment with a state and a permanent state, which I think kind of goes against this idea of impermanence. It's kind of interesting. And if I think of my teacher, Master Kuzan, he was reputed to have had three awakenings. And you might think one should be enough, but he got three. But he never said himself, I am awakened. Never, never. I mean, once he came very close and what he said was somebody said, but what have you got that I have not got? That was a Westerner asking this kind of direct question. And Master Kuzan said, well, we are on a train. I possibly, I am a little ahead in front of the train. Possibly you could be at the back of the train, but we're on the same train. <laughs> and when we asked him about, you know, his awakenings, and again, he would not say anything. The only thing he said when we asked him his life story for a book was, and then something happened, and I wrote a poem, which I showed my teacher. So we got the poem, and what was beautifully said, and the third time, Something happened, and I gave uh, the poem to my teacher. Then my teacher said, hmm, until now, you were my disciple. Now, you are going to be my teacher. Meaning that he had, in a way, attained more understanding than his teacher. So in a way, to me, what was interesting with Master Kuzan is to, although he was reputed to have had three awakening, etc., to the last day of his life, he practiced meditation. So he did not see himself as having reached a permanent something. And so that's why I want to look a little in terms of you know, our own experience during this retreat. What is it that we might experience? that it be on a retreat, that it be outside of a retreat. And I think we often can experience meditative states or mystical experience or insights. And in a way, what do we do with those? What happens? And personally, 
the way I would understand all of this would be more as a de-grasping. But let's look at each meditative state. This, I would say, is when we sit in meditation and we start suddenly to experience what I would call a quiet and clear state. So we feel more quiet, we feel more clear. But the first time we experience this, we are, oh, wow, this is it, this is it, awakening in the next second. And then, of course, it goes. And I think, in a way, what we have to learn when we meditate is actually to be with these meditative states and to not see them as acquiring something, but more to see them as nurturing ourselves, nurturing our being, and that in a way we have to learn to be with them. And I would say the way to be with these states is actually to be a bit like a mother and a child. If she holds the child too tight, it's going to cry, if she holds it too loose, it's going to fall. And I think it's the same when we feel this quietness, this clarity, to just be with it. Because often the idea is, how can I go deeper? This is, I think, a bit the myth, going deeper. <laughs> Personally, I don't think we have to go deeper anywhere. Personally, I would say we have to go wider. <laughs> And so in a way, when you feel quietness and clarity, just to be with it. And if you just learn to be with it, what is interesting is that it will last a little longer. But of course, that too is impermanent. And then it will fade away. Then you might have, you know, like mystical experiences. And this, I would say, is kind of something which is more kind of, kind of a little more intense and suddenly you have this kind of, I mean, there are different types, but one type could be that suddenly you're sitting there, you're doing your what is this, and suddenly you experience everybody as a Buddha nature. And at that moment, you have no doubt about your own Buddha nature and everybody's Buddha nature. And often it's quite exhilarating. But again, I think what is important is to just be with that. And then that too fades away. And then in a way we have the challenge of making that experience organic in our daily life. Because, you see, often it just stays in the retreat. You know, ah, oh, everybody's got the Buddha nature, but not my neighbor. <laughs> Postman, not sure about that. And to see actually how can we, when we have experience, to me, this is a challenge. How can it become organic into our daily life? How can it have a connection to our daily life? Or we might have an insight. And in a way, an insight, what I think is interesting with an insight, an understanding, is that we see something we have never seen before. It doesn't mean that it was not right in front of our eyes. But up to that moment, we had not seen it. And I think it's important to, to, to know that. We see something. Wow! We kind of suddenly see something. It's very clear. And in a way, we cannot unsee it. We really have seen it. And in a way, we know something we did not know before. 
But at the same time, it's very important to see that when we have an insight, generally it will become a memory. When you have it, it is very obvious and it's quite a special moment. But again, that too is impermanent. And then the challenge is actually that it has an effect in the way we see the world, in the way we relate to the world. Once I had this experience, I was doing a, a community retreat, and at the same time I had to do my, uh, kind of my working job, what I earned my daily bread, which was to clean. So I finished the meditation, and then I went to do the, the cleaning. And being a house cleaner, uh, my great fear, my great fear whenever I was going to the toilet was when I opened the toilet thing, I would find a big something in there. <laughs> this was, ah! I was, ah! So, I go to the toilet, I open the toilet bowl, and there is a big one. <laughs> and I see that it is just a form. It is just a form. And still I have to flush it, so I do that. But to me, what was interesting was a difference between before it was, ah, again, this exaggeration. And in that inside, just to see, it was just something conditioned, which arose upon certain conditions, and it would disappear upon other conditions. There was nothing to kind of be, ooh, about it. But so in that moment, it was extremely clear. But then, in a way, it is more like, like a memory. But at the same time, if we bring that insight, I think, into our daily life, then we when I encounter things where a little kind of, you know, ugly or a little smelly or whatever, then there is less of that. <gasps> if I can, in a way, from that insight, just see them. So I won't have the same experience. This is when one has to be careful. One doesn't have the same experience, but it can take something away from our grasping. And that's what I experienced because a few years later, I was taking care of my grandmother. And uh, she was a little old. My mother went to do something else. And so I was taking care of her for a few days. And so one morning I go to... Get, make grandma get up and help her to dress and various things. And so I'm kind of starting to kind of, you know, check her out and things like that and then do something. And then suddenly I see there is feces all over the floor and I have walked in it. And grandma is also full of it. <laughs> and my first, what was interesting was first, <gasps> was like nearly, ah, I can't deal with this. And also kind of to get angry with grandma who created these terrible conditions. And then I thought, no, this is, this is the way it is. I can deal with this one thing at a time. I can just be with this. And it was an amazing experience. I cleaned grandma, I cleaned the things, and it only took an hour. And there was no agitation. And I think it was because of that seeing, the seeing which, seeing the form, seeing the conditionality, and in a way not being so caught, in a way, in the grasping, 
in the exaggeration, in the proliferation. So in a way to see that the, the, we can have experience on retreat, but then how can we bring that into our daily life? And so I think we have to be careful of not putting too much emphasis on this momentary experience. Because to me, the greatest effect of the meditation is actually the fact that you sit and the fact that through the sitting, through the trying to concentrate, through the trying to inquire, there is this de-grasping. There is this releasing. And to me, this is what will make a difference so that when you go into your daily life, actually it makes a difference. And often I have people who come to me and they say, I meditate and I've meditated for 10 years and my meditation is not different. And I then say, what about your life? And they say, oh, greatly different. So in a way, to see that often the effect is in the daily life. And at the same time, if I kind of look more at their meditation, we can see together that it has progressed. But the meditation is not like they think it should be. And often I have the feeling that when we meditate, there are actually two people meditating the real meditator, and the imagined one. And the imagined one has no thought, no pain, and ooh, amazing. <laughs> but if you compare this one to that imagined one, then it becomes frustrating. But there is no abstract meditator. There is just this meditator doing whatever he or she can do with his or her conditions. Then, this is a difficult one. This is another quote, but I think it's a very interesting quote. So, you have to listen carefully. This is Tahui. He's a Chinese master of the 12th century. He's my favorite Zen master. In the daily activity of a student of the path, to empty object is easy, but to empty the mind is hard. If objects are empty, but mind is not empty, mind will be overcome by objects. Just empty your mind, and objects will be empty by themselves. To me, this is a... Shall I repeat it? Okay. In the daily activity of a student of the path, to empty object is easy. But to empty the mind is hard. If objects are empty, but mind is not empty, mind will be overcome by objects. Just empty your mind, and objects will be empty by themselves. To me, this really points out the danger we have in spiritual life to become what I would call too spiritual, and to think that, Actually, everything is illusion. Everything is just kind of, you know, everything is mine, everything is illusion. So, poo, who cares? Who gets broken? It's impermanent. Who cares? Especially if it's not mine. <laughs> you know, and I think there is a great danger because I think if we kind of see more that the object is empty, but if the mind has not degrassed, 
if the mind is still grasping and it just kind of just say, oh yes, this is illusory, then actually the object will get you back. Not maybe the object, but you know, kind of, you know, your desires or whatever it is will get you back. And I think this is what Taui is pointing out. Because it's easy to say, oh yes, this doesn't matter. Oh yes, this doesn't matter. I am above this. Often there is this misunderstanding of equanimity as, oh, nothing can reach me. I am, this is, this is not important. Oh yeah, no, 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 no. Relationship, you know. But actually, I think this is not really what, 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 what the meditation is about. But the meditation is more, as he said, emptying the mind. But emptying the mind doesn't mean there is nothing in the mind. Because as Winang said, no mind is a mind who knows everything and who is free from attachment. So what he's talking about is that kind of a non-grasping mind. And I think... In a way, just to, to make an example, if, if I grasp at this, if I grasp this, this is precious, it's mine, I hold on to it. And if I do this, two things happen. The first thing is that I get a cramp in the arm, but the second thing, which is more important, is that I am stuck to what I am grasping at. So then you might say, what is the solution to this? That by grasping, I am causing suffering to myself and I'm also reducing myself to what I'm grasping at. And then one solution could be that you cut the hand. <laughs> and this is like part of emptying object. I would say, that's not a good idea. Another idea would be, if there is no object, I am not going to grasp. But the object is not saying, come, come, come. You really want to grasp at me. The object is not doing anything. And that's why it's easy to empty it. But if we actually, and to me this is what the meditation is about, is not to get rid of the object or the hand, but it's kind of learning to open the hand, de-grasping, so that then there can be movement. And then we can creatively engage with whatever we encounter, and I think that's what he said. If we empty the mind, if the mind, if the whole body and mind complex is not grasping in this way, then we can creatively engage with object. And so they won't, in a way, hold of us. They won't be kind of more powerful than we are. And also in a way to see that if we don't grasp like this, then we're actually not going to do two things, which is to exaggerate, because as soon as we grasp, we exaggerate, or we proliferate. And we generally, as soon as we grasp, there is very strong identification. And to me, this is one moment, in a way, I had when I was in Korea. I had not been there very long maybe a year, and I went to the bank during the free period to change some money. And the bank teller gave me too much money. And my first reaction was, great. Well, again, the capitalist system, I can keep it for myself. 
And straight he was, mm, me, more. And so I walked a few steps, and then I stopped. And I realized I cannot do this. I cannot hold on to this money, on to this free money. But why could not I do it? Because of compassion, God, I thought, he's going to get into trouble. And so to my great surprise, I retraced my step, and I gave back the money. But to me, this was, in a way, a moment of de-grasping. And in this de-grasping, there was this awareness of others. There was this compassion, because one is not so caught up, reduced to one's want, one's desire. Then, another one. This is by Huineng, the Sixth Patriarch. To let not a passing thought rise up his mind. To let not the coming thought be annihilated his Buddha. To let not a passing thought rise up his mind. To let not the coming thought be annihilated his Buddha. He's basically saying, don't let the thought arise and don't let the thought go. I mean, this is a contradictory statement, isn't it? But this is interesting because, you see, in a way, it is a middle way. He's saying, thought arise, don't grasp at it. And when they're there, don't reject it. Because in a way, the thing is that if we grasp, we're actually going to magnify what we grasp at. And when we reject, we do the same thing. When we grab, grasp at something in rejection, we're actually also going to magnify it. If you have some, a problem with somebody at the office, somebody said something, did something, and really you are upset. But, I mean, it lasted about 10 minutes. But you're upset about this person, and they always do this, and they really have something against me, and really, you know, what do they think they are? And, oh, really, you know, if only they were not there. And you go round and round. And then, you know, the, the day finish, and you go home, and you keep thinking about it, you know, in the car, or getting into the house, doing the, the food, washing the dishes. You still think about the person. I mean, the person has not asked to be in your head. You are keeping it. You are keeping him or her in your head. And this is the thing. In a way, when he says, when something arises, don't grasp at it. Don't push it away. Can you creatively engage with it? Can you? And to me, this is in a way the challenge of meditation. What does it mean? If I don't grasp and if I don't reject, to me, it's what you have been experiencing this week when you have had moment of what I would call creative awareness, where you're very aware of your thought, of your feeling, of your sensation, but you don't do anything with it. And so they arise and they pass away of themselves. Then another one. Again, this is Huenen. Uh, For ordinary men or women is Buddha. And compulsions are awakening. A foolish passing thought makes one an ordinary person, while an awakened second thought makes one a Buddha. 
A passing thought that clings to sense object is compulsion, while a second thought that frees one from attachment is awakening. And here what he is saying is actually all of us are Buddhas and all our negative tendencies are awakening. And so basically what he is saying is that in a way there is no, at the level of the, the person, the Buddha and the ordinary person, they are the same person. So that when we try to meditate, we are not trying to become somebody else. We are not trying to become this perfect kind of person somewhere else. The Buddha and the ordinary person, they are the same stuff. And the same thing, the compulsion and the awakening come from the same material. We're not going to get awakening dropping out of the sky. It comes from, in a way, understanding, actually, our compulsion, understanding our ordinariness. And then he goes on to say that, in a way, if we have an, a foolish thought, we are an ordinary person. If we have second thought awakened, we are awakened in that moment. So in a way, he's saying we have a choice. We can have a kind of a, a stupid thought. We can have a greedy thought, a hateful thought. Or we can have a wise thought or a compassionate thought. And then he goes on to say that if the thought clings to attachment, clings to sense object, then that is compulsion. But a second thought which frees one from attachment, that is awakening. So in a way to see that what we're doing is not outside of ourselves, the world or conditions, but is really to deal with ourselves right here, right now, with whatever we have, whatever patterns, whatever habits. And to in a way see how can I creatively engage with my thought, my feeling, my sensation, my situation. And so in a way, to me, the, the, the awareness, the meditation is to make us more actually aware of our compulsion, more aware how we grasp. How do we grasp? How does it feel when we don't grasp? And to see, when we don't grasp, we are like a Buddha. There is space. There is this stability. There is this openness. One interesting um, experience is waiting. Waiting is generally in our society, we don't like to wait. Waiting is generally makes us nervous. So what happens when we wait? We wait, we wait, we wait for somebody. Nine o'clock, hmm, not there. Hmm. Ten past nine, hmm, they don't love me. <laughs> nine twenty. Nobody loves me. <laughs> 9.30, I hate the world. <laughs> but you see, what do we do here? What do we do here? Because you see, in a way, we have a choice. We have a choice to go into this loop or to think, oh, maybe there is a good reason for the person to be late. Maybe the tire, they had a flat tire or whatever. Once I had this experience, I was expecting somebody, and they did not show up. And I thought, ah. And instead of going off, you know, they don't da-da-da-da, I thought, maybe I should phone them. So I phoned, and she said, oh, I thought it was next week. So in a way, to me, this is a moment 
You have the choice to getting lost in your, your loop or this creative engagement, this creative awareness. On one time, I was uh, doing, you know, various paperwork in France and it was really fraught with difficulty and I thought it was finally, after two years, I was getting there. Then I go to the lady and she says, ooh, madame, you know, come in two weeks with more papers to fill. So, so I come out and I, I was paralyzed, stuck on the pavement. And I looked and I thought, but what is going on? And the thought in my mind, what I would call a foolish thought in my mind was, I am hopeless. This is hopeless. It will always be like this. I will never get this done. And then I thought, no, I am not hopeless. I can read. I can write. I can feel more form. I can continue. And to me, it was very interesting. Because when I grasped, when I got caught in the kind of negative spiraling thought, the grasping thought, then I was caught. I was really reduced to that thought. But as soon as I questioned it, is this true? Then, again, there was kind of an area of possibility. It was kind of just open up. And I think this is what he's talking here. How do we cling? How do we let go? And then another one, and this is Chino. This is a great master in Korea, founder of our tem temple. To have no wrongdoings in the midst of the mind is a precept. To have no giddiness in the midst of the mind is concentration. To have no foolishness in the mind is wisdom. And this is pointing out that actually we need the three things together, ethics, meditation, and wisdom. And so in a way for us to look in a way that meditation is not just about getting this amazing state or this breakthrough, but that it has to go with this ethical attitude, with this kind of compassion for ourselves and others, with this respect for ourselves and others. And to me, this is... I can trace possibly my first step on the path at what I would call my first ethical moment. And this was when I was 19, and I was living in London. And be, having been an anarchist from kind of some years, I was uh, very much against the capitalist system, and one of the things I used to do was to liberate objects, <laughs> basically stealing <laughs> basically stealing, but I called it liberation. <laughs> so one of the things I would do in London was to liberate, still, spiritual books. I mean, this is a bit of a contradiction in terms. So I go there once, pinch one book, possibly Krishnamurti, don't know. Then, you know, two weeks later, I go again, pitched another one. And then as I was reading these books, I thought, something is wrong here. <laughs> something is wrong here. This is not a good idea to steal, to pinch this spiritual box. <laughs> and then I thought, but how can I not do it? Because if you want to be ethical in a way, the, the first question is, how can I not do it? And it became very clear to me 
that I had not to be in contact with those books in that shop because it was too tempting. And so I think this was my first step on the spiritual path to see contact, kind of, you know, like this foolish wrongdoing going on and for myself. And then, and I did not do it for a few weeks. I did not go to that bookshop. And after that, I never did it again. It was kind of that moment of seeing that what I was doing was actually wrong. It was not beneficial. It really was not a good idea. So in a way, this kind of cultivation, this awareness of this harmlessness, and to see what is it that makes us, to me, this is what is interesting. When we are unethical, what is going on? And very often there is a lot of self-centeredness there, a lot of kind of, you know, for me, for me. It's very interesting to look. What is going on? And then he says, to have no giddiness in the mind, this is concentration. And I think this is very much what we're trying to develop. And that's why I talk about stability, to develop that just being able to be stable so that when there is difficulty in our daily life, we are not destabilized. Because this is what I find. We go into automatism because we are destabilized. Somebody said something, we are shocked, and then we go into survival mode. We go into automatic mode. And to me, meditation helps us to kind of be more stable so that we can have difficulty which comes, but we kind of go in our body and then we kind of get settled. Once I had that experience when uh, I was going to, supposed to do something with somebody and then I don't know why suddenly the person starting to shout at me for 20 minutes. It just started to shout at me. I knew that I lots of negative things, etc., etc. And it was very obvious to me that it had nothing to do with me because I had not done anything of the thing he said. And it was not very pleasant, but what was interesting that I could be with it without reacting to it, without shouting back or anything. I could just stand there, just listen to it, but with spaciousness. I was not destabilized by it. And then I, I, then I said, well, if you don't want to meet me, don't, don't. You know, I can't force you. But it was just very interesting. To me, this is what we're developing, this stability. And I think part of it is very much that concentration, that focusing, that coming back helps us also to be more stable. And also the question, the question I think is helping us to develop wisdom and to kind of start to ask in ourselves, start to ask in a way a lot of our stories. We're telling ourselves a lot of stories. And I think the question is helping us to ask, but is this true? When I'm telling, I'm stupid, everybody's stupid, everything is terrible. Is this really true? All the time? Time to time? Maybe? So in a way to kind of start to question kind of this certain of the fixed idea that we have. And the last one. However well you practice meditation, this is Wonyo, another great Korean master. However well you practice meditation, without moral discipline, you will be like someone who is shown the way to a treasure house, but never goes there. However well you endure austerities, without wisdom, 
You will be like a person who instead intends to go east, but actually heads west. And in a way, here he's saying meditation and ethics and wisdom again need to be together. And I think this is to me why I don't put so much emphasis on the meditative state or on breakthrough or on insight. You see, you can practice really well. You can really practice really well. But this is not enough. One has to really have the ethics. One has to have the wisdom. And together, they will cultivate, they will help you to cultivate each other more. And that's why when I hear that somebody is awakened or supposedly enlightened, and then they go and have, you know, sex in a kind of a kind of painful way and etc. or they go and get drunk or whatever. Personally, it doesn't matter to me how much awakening they have. If they don't live an ethical life, what's the point? Because if you are not ethical, generally you create harm to yourself and to others. And so I think it's very important that, in a way, that's what he says, without moral discipline, you will be like someone who is shown the way to a treasure house. But you never go there. So to see that the meditation very much goes to with the ethic, that they very much help each other. And so in a way, the meditation is more to work inside. But the ethic is very much to work outside in terms of our relationship. How do we relate to ourselves, to the world? And also, in a way, with the second one, that we can practice really well. We can meditate for hours on end. I have a friend who's like this. When he does a retreat, he's amazing. I've never seen somebody meditate so well. I'm always amazed. But And for many years, he really wanted to teach. He had this obsession. He wanted to teach. And you would have thought, he practiced so well, and he wants to teach. He should be able to do it. But he did not have the wisdom. And so he never found people interested in listening to him. And so in a way, I think one has to see, just to see it and to see it is not enough. We really have to apply it. That actually when we sit in meditation, the concentration, the inquiry is helping us to develop creative awareness. But that creative awareness, we have to use it. We really have to use it in our daily life. And then when we sit again, there can be more insight. So in a way, the two very much goes together. That's what I wanted to say today. Are there any questions or comments? Yes? Yeah, no, no, I think, I, I think what is important is to see that the wisdom goes with the compassion. I think very much, to me, the compassion is very much within the ethics. That ethics is not about rule and regulation. 
But ethics is very much, in a way, I think there is two aspects to ethics. One is restraint, and another one is cultivation. Cultivation of harmlessness, cultivation of generosity, cultivation of respect, cultivation of honesty, cultivation of clarity. And so I think if you bring this to the questioning, if you bring harmlessness to the questioning, in a way, there is not that judgment. If you bring generosity to the questioning, it's not judging. So I think this, to me, is something very important, that we do not use awareness. Because this is, I think, the danger with the kind of the awareness we develop in meditation for ourselves or others, that actually it piggyback onto judgment. And so we actually use awareness to beat ourselves up. I am not mindful enough. They're not mindful enough. I mean, this is, I could really see this in the community. When I lived in a Buddhist community, how people would use the teaching to beat other people up. You know, if you were mindful, you would wash your cups or whatever it was. And, and so in a way, I think it's very important to, I think, to be aware of that. That actually the awareness is not a little policeman or policewoman on the shoulder. But I think often that's what it becomes. It's kind of like, instead of being in the experience itself, you're above it. So you're judging yourself the way you eat, the way you talk. The, and this actually, I think it's worse. This is really not helpful. And so I think, in a way, the, to cultivate, if we cultivate the generosity, the harmlessness, as the, not as, I must be like this. A good Buddhist does this. That, again, I don't think is helpful. But that kind of this genuine intention to be harmless and to kind of see what are the conditions that helps me to be harmless. What are the conditions that helps me to be generous? How can I be generous with myself? How can I be generous with others? And to me there, it's more looking at the experience. Instead of kind of being above it. This is one that we have to be very careful of not using the awareness to be above the experience. But to really go inside it. And then, of course, yes, we can use it. We can have different stands. I think you can have the compassionate stance. And at the same time, again, it can work differently for different people. For some people to have the compassionate stance, if it's allied with wisdom and stability, then it works. And then with some people, if they start straight away with the compassionate stance, but if there is no stability or wisdom, then they get caught, in a way, by the compassion. And then they get caught by the pain of the world, in a way. And then, then you, can't, you can't breathe. It's too much. What can I do? So again, it's more, what is it that helps me? And if you feel that a compassion stand is what helps you, I would say, yes, do that, cultivate that, if you find that it has a stability. And so in a way, each of us has to cultivate this thing, what is appropriate for us. Yes?
know whether you think, like sometimes I really worry about losing my insights. <laughs> I was wondering whether go and um, <laughs> whether whether it's like is it like a do you think maybe it's a kind of cumulative thing? Maybe there's been some insights in the past, and even if I can't remember them, they have some impact. I I would say yes. I think in a way. This is why I was making the difference between when you have the insight, it's so clear that you have, the, you have the feeling it will be there forever. And then you get disappointed when actually it doesn't last forever. But it lasts in a different way. I think it doesn't last in that <gasps> amazing in that moment. But I think it is something, as I say, we have learned, we have seen. And in that way, we cannot unsee it. But we cannot see it all the time. I think this is what we have to be careful. But I think seeing it, I would say, de-intensify what, what you were blind to before. So in a way, because you know something, then generally it will dissipate some of the exaggeration and some of the proliferation. But it will not Stop, stop, dissolve totally the habit. Because you see, in a way, your inside has a little power. And your habit also has some power. <laughs> and sometimes the inside, in a way, sometimes you need to have a, what I would call a few insight and also some degrasping to finally dissolve the habit. So I think it takes time. It's just, you know, we have the inside and it's so amazing. We think, wow, this is it. Now I will not do this again. And then you find yourself doing it again. You think, what happened? And you feel like, maybe I did not have the insight. But you had it, but you have to see that you have, in a way, two power going on, the power of the insight and the power of the habit. And so, in a way, you have to develop over time the power of the insight and the creative awareness. And then, at some point, it can, in a way, slowly becomes stronger than the power of the habit. I think it's very important that the insight is not in a vacuum. It's this complex human being, which has habits and patterns and things. So I would say the insight stays. It's underneath. It's there. And that, but there are certain conditions where it will be easier to see it and to feel it than others. Again, you see, it doesn't have the same power, but I would say the little power it has is that the thing will last less long. This, I think, is very important to see. You see, we generally are a little, not impatient, but we would like it to be full blast. 
But I personally feel that it's a great improvement if, you know, you had a habit and before it lasted two days and now it lasts three hours. It makes a difference. And I think, in a way, to remember the inside kind of just a little bit, kind of give a little, you're not so caught in it. But because of its power, it will last a little. But I generally would say it will de-intensify it. It will make us last less long. And now there is walking, and then we'll come for the last sitting at 8.30.